Amen. All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 as we continue our trek through the gospel of Matthew. We're coming into the Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' ministry on earth, so to speak. And as he comes into Jerusalem, he is coming to make a reformation. Of course, if you didn't know, happy Reformation Day today. That's what today is celebrating, as far as I'm concerned anyway. Today, October 31st, marks what we recognize, the start of the Protestant Reformation. For it was 504 years ago, on October 31st in 1517, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. This was the spark that set the tinders that were laid by the Renaissance, the beginnings of returning back to the sources. There was a rediscovery in the Renaissance of going back to the original languages, reading the Bible, not in Latin, but going back to the Greek, going back to the Hebrew, seeing what was originally written. And as those pursuits were already in action during the Renaissance, Martin Luther comes and sends the spark of his 95 theses into that pile of hay that set the world ablaze with the gospel. It was the spark of this criticism from a German monk that set a raging gospel fire that took over Europe and eventually spread across the world. But the forest fire, it can rage a bit out of control. And at times, it certainly far exceeded Luther's modest aims as he nailed those 95 theological statements to the bulletin board of the church, the castle church door. See, Luther initially, and like him, John Calvin in Geneva, the great French reformer, they wanted to reform the church. We call it the Protestant Reformation. They wanted to call the church back to the Word of God. That is, these men didn't want to burn the church to the ground and build a new one. They wanted to take the true church, what we know is to be the Roman Catholic Church, and reform it and bring it back to faithfulness to the truth. They wanted to correct the errors in doctrine and in practice and in theology, the errors that had become so rampant in the Catholic assemblies. And their standard, and this is so key, their standard for reform and change was the inerrant, infallible Word of God. They wanted to bring the church back to the Bible. And in so doing, as they returned to the Scriptures, back to the sources, they rediscovered the good news. We talked about that already this morning. They rediscovered that salvation and peace with God come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that works to the glory of God alone because we now adhere to Scripture alone and not men's ideas and fantasies. But these truths that they were rediscovered in the Reformation, they are only established forever and maintained as the church holds fast and ever adheres to Scripture alone, that chief authority for our lives and, of course, the life of the church. But both of those men, Luther and Calvin, as they called the church to reform, they found that the Roman church was rather stiff, hard to bend such that the more they pressed and attempted to return the church back to the Word, eventually the church could no longer bend, and it just broke and splintered many times over, such that Luther ended up leading his own church, the Lutheran church tradition. And John Calvin and his successors established the Reformed Church, is what the tradition we know today. But see, it had to be done. Christ's church had to be held captive again to the Word of God. 
such that it's been said that the true motto then of the day of the Reformation was this, Semper Reformanda, always reforming and reforming by the Word of God. And that doesn't stop in 1517 or 1555 or 1666. It goes on as faithful believers. That goes on as us, faithful, gospel-preaching, believing, preaching Protestants. That's who we are. As we open His book and we see the holiness of God, we devote ourselves to this Word to be confronted and conformed to the Christ of the Word. And that doesn't stop until we get to glory. And if that ever stops, then we're in trouble and we're in need of in our own hearts and maybe in our church of a new reformation. See, the true Christian, Paul talks about this, doesn't he? The true Christian has never arrived. We've never fully put off sin. We're never perfect until we get to see Christ face to face. So tell then, we are always repenting. We're always reforming ourselves, but we only do so by Christ's authoritative word. We've never arised. We're always repenting and reforming by the word. So this exhortation to us this morning, do not harden your heart to Christ's authoritative word. Open your heart to him. Submit to him. Do not harden your heart to his authoritative word, because if you do, then you're in need of a reformation. And what we're going to look in our text are two episodes that show us this, two signs in your heart, you need a reformation. Again, as he rides into town here into Jerusalem, that's what he finds. He's trying to reform their worship. They were in desperate need of a reformation. And the first sign we see with the Jewish leaders here. And even for ourselves, the first sign that you need a reformation is this. You think that you are the authority. If you start to think you are the authority, then you are in desperate need for a reformation. Look at verses 23 through 27. We need a reformation once we start to ignore God's word. We start to leave it on the shelf. When we start to excuse our disobedience. Or we start to pretend that his word doesn't apply to us, at least in that way. And what have you done then when you start to say these kind of things? You are putting yourself over the Word of God. You're no longer under its authority. And that's where we find, once again, the Jewish leaders to be. And we find them there even as they have the audacity to go confront the Messiah face to face, to go confront God in flesh and tell Him what worship is really like. Because they think they're in charge. They think they're the authority around here in the temple. Only by the end of this interaction, they are the ones that stand rebuked, confronted. Now this comes as, as we continue in the story, this comes as Jesus on the next day now returns back to the temple. See, the day before he had done what we call, he cleansed the temple. He drove out the animals. He drove out all the merchants. He even reestablished his own praise there of the children singing to him, Hosanna, son of David. He came in to reform their hypocritical, empty worship. Remember Jesus? He even then compared them to a fruitless fig tree. They had all the appearances of worship. They had the the leafy green branches, but there was no fruit. It was all just a show. It was empty. See, Jesus rides to town as a reformer, and he's seeking true, rightful worship. Well, that temple cleansing, that was on Monday. So now we're on the next day. And he returns to worship headquarters. He returns back to the temple. And as we find then to open the scene, he's doing what he so often did. And he's once again teaching. 
See, this was really the bulk of Jesus' ministry. He taught repeatedly, over and over. We've seen that with extended sections in Matthew's gospel. Now, what was he teaching? Luke's gospel records that he's preaching the good news. He's preaching the gospel. But what specifically was he teaching? Think of the things Jesus taught as we've been walking through Matthew's gospel. Think of the Sermon on the Mount and all of the exhortations we found there. Think of the parables of the kingdom from chapter 13. Think of illustrations of camels and needles or the exhortation, take up your cross and follow me. These are the kind of things Jesus taught, and he teaches them wherever he goes. And he's doing that here. And it is here in this text now, we get to listen on an extended teaching from Jesus that goes through the next couple chapters. See, Jesus enters the temple here on verse 23, and he continues to teach and leaves the temple by chapter 24. So for several chapters here, we're following Jesus in an extended teaching and interaction about the kingdom, the gospel, and his mission. Except as it it begins, now in verse 23, this teaching initially gets interrupted. Let's look there. So finally, let's look at verse 23 of chapter 21. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, right away, you've got to recognize, this is no private question, is it? This isn't a backroom confrontation. What are they doing? This is all intended to be very public. This is a public rebuke to Jesus. Right away, the Jewish leaders understand, everyone understands who's seeing it. They're not coming up to Jesus to teach us, even though they ask a question. They're coming to expose him. They're setting a trap for him. It's a trap. Jesus, watch out. Why? Because the, the matter's already settled in their minds. What have we seen as we walk through this gospel? What have you seen with the Pharisees and Jewish scholars? They've been dogging Jesus wherever he went, saying, he doesn't teach by the authority of God. He teaches by the authority of who? Satan. Remember this? They even said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. It was settled in their mind. They were convinced Jesus must be of the devil or else what? If he wasn't, what would he have done? He would have agreed with them. He would have said, Atta boy, guys, you've been doing a good job. Thanks for getting things ready until I got here. He would have praised the religious establishment. And that, that's exactly who you have coming to Jesus now in the temple as he teaches. This is a, an official delegation of the religious authorities. Again, what is on their mind? They run this place, right? We're the elders, we're the ones in charge, we're the chief priests. Who in the world authorized you to be here? Who do you think you are? Now, we can only guess what they thought Jesus might say. Again, because they're setting a trap for him. They're hoping to expose him. Maybe he'll be silent. Because he won't have a good answer. Because he doesn't have one, so they thought. They, They hope to expose his lack of rabbinic pedigree and authority. That he wasn't with one of the main teachers. He wasn't associated with one of the main schools. Or worse, really, they, they wanted to show not only he's a fraud, but that he's a blasphemer. They would claim that he's done, done something so... They, they were hoping he would claim something so audacious. Maybe that he's even God's very son. And in that, they would, we got him. And catch him and seize him and deal with him. But whatever plans they had in posing this question to Jesus, things don't turn out like they anticipated but they give an answer to Jesus, and Jesus, or give a question to Jesus, and he comes back with another question. Let's look at verse 24. 
Jesus answered them, I also, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? It's simple. It's a simple question. It's a multiple choice. There's only two answers. This isn't complicated. Of course, though, as they started to think about this more, they realize they're in trouble. Things are starting to backfire really quickly. They came to expose Jesus, and they're finding out, "Uh uh-oh, we're the ones being exposed. Think about John's baptism, Jesus says. Are you able to recognize, here's Jesus' real question, are you able to recognize the authority of God when you actually see it? Can you even see God's authority? You got two choices. Where did John's baptism come from? Did it come from heaven or did it come from men? So yes, simple question, and that way simple answer, but it wasn't so simple for them, was it? At least the answer doesn't make them very comfortable in the situation they're in. And so then Matthew takes us into their mental calculations about how they're going to try and formulate a response to get out of this mess. Because neither option to say out loud looks good for them. Look at verse 25 then. And they discussed it among themselves. They were like, "Uh uh-oh, gather around, guys. Let's figure this out. If we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, why then did you not believe him? But then if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Okay, so if we then acquiesce and say we agree with the popular consensus that John really was on a mission from God to baptize sinners, there's a big problem. We incriminate ourselves. And why is that? Because we didn't believe John. We didn't get baptized by him. We didn't like what he said. We didn't think he was from God. We didn't submit to his message. And he, John, certainly didn't submit to their message. Remember, he called them a brood of vipers. Another way to say, you're demon children. And let's just say they didn't agree so much with John's assessment. So that's one option. But here's the thing. The people did think he was a prophet. They did think he was from God. And not only now was John seen as a holy, devoted, and fiery prophet, now he was a martyr. He sealed his testimony and the truth of it with his blood. He paid the ultimate price. And so his esteem in the people's hearts swelled now, such that the Jewish leaders, they had at least enough awareness to to realize if they spoke out loud about what they really thought about John the Baptist, namely that he was a fraud, that he was perhaps a crazy man, at best that John was just a misguided zealot, if they spoke out loud what they really thought about John, they knew the people would pounce on them. Luke's gospel records, they were afraid that the crowds would actually stone and kill them. And so they're stuck on the horns of a dilemma. What, what can they say? It's a catch-22. It's a lose-lose situation. They're, they're stuck. And two, unlike John, they're cowards. They're not driven by the truth. They're captured by the fear of man. And in this way, then, he's exposed them for the frauds and fakes and pretend authorities they really are. They have no spiritual authority. And they prove that very fact when they finally formulate a reply after their extended deliberations. Here we go, verse 27. And so they answer Jesus. Again, these profound scholars, students of the Word of God. We don't know. That's their answer. And so their spiritual impotence, fakery, and bankruptcy 
just shows forth itself. That these supposed spiritual authorities, the, the supposed teachers, they, they saw themselves as guides to the blind. Everybody come to us to get your answers. We will teach you about God. And yet here they hedge their bets and reply, well, we don't know. And to this cowardly reply, Jesus upholds his end of the bargain. Again, verse 27. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In summary, Jesus uncovered their hypocrisy. That these leaders were in no place to try and make a spiritual judgment about him. And why not? Because they're spiritually biased. They're blind. They're blind to the truth of God. They should have seen it with John, and they couldn't see it. They didn't want to see it. They, they weren't open to the truth. They were their own spiritual authorities. They had it all settled and figured out. Even that meant, even if that meant they must be in settled opposition to God's authority. And so the word comes to us then, be warned religious folks, people that are devoted to expository teaching and have their Bibles and actually take them to church, be warned. These people thought they were the spiritual authority when they were in opposition to God, even though they looked so devoted. They had all the trappings of being very religious, very fervent in their love for God, but apparently their devotion was only skin deep. Their hearts were far from God. And that point was proven such that when God's true authority did show up, they don't bow to it. They don't submit to it. What do they do instead? They question, they accuse, and they look to silence the Word of God. They'll play religion as long as it agrees or coincides with what they want. In this case, for the Jewish leaders, it meant prestige that meant respect, that meant money in their pockets, it meant security, it meant power. But as soon as any of that is undermined, they reflexively just cut off the source and they redouble their efforts to build their self-righteous silos of their own self-authority such that no matter what God says, no matter what God's authority says, we're not going to move. And that is a heart set in opposition to God. But before we move along, you got to ask, Are there hints of that in your own life? Do you submit to the authority of God's Word? And I mean all of it, not just the parts you like. Or do you try and oppose the very authority of God's Word by saying something like, well, that doesn't apply to me, that part, or or, that's not God's Word for me, those rules aren't for me. And of course, you got to go back and say, well, who says so? (laughs) You or Jesus? And that's the answer, isn't it? Well, I'd never do that. Well, before you swallow that one, consider this. How might that manifest itself in your life when you are bucking the authority of the Word of God? Do you ever make excuses for your sin? Your excuse, it's always working as a rationale for why you can disregard Christ's Word and His authority in your life or in some scenario. I mean, have you ever caught yourself saying or thinking something like, yeah, but Jesus didn't talk about that. It's not in the red letters of my Bible, so it can't be that important. Or, I know God wants me to be happy, and I I just need this so bad. He'll understand it's going to be okay, even though His Word seems to say, you ever tried this one? Yeah, I know, that's not the best thing. But if you think about what they did to me, or what she said to me, if you realize what the situation I was in, and you have your excuse. 
to disobey the word of God, to be your own authority. As if God's word only applies in certain situations and circumstances of your life, and in others it doesn't. But who gets to make that call? You're making that call. You're the authority, and you're in need of a reformation. That's not submission to the word of God and Christ's authority. That's not let your will be done. That's let my will be done. So consider your sins. Consider your sins this past week even. And, and, and uncover there what were the lame excuses you gave about why you should do them. And, and that'll lead you to the places that you're trying to get out from the word of God. Now, that, that, that's personally. You can think about this too on the church-wide level too. Because the Reformation reminds us with this, with this call of sola scriptura, whole churches can undermine the authority of Christ and His Word. And indeed, how will that show itself in the church when you undermine the authority of Christ? Well, you will get rid of this Word. You will bury the Word. You will silence the Word. You will ignore the Word. You'll move on from the clear teaching of Scripture and the Word and give yourself to the doctrines and teachings of men. That's what had happened in the Roman church. That's why the Reformation was so needed. The, the church had devoted itself to such twisted and clearly unbiblical doctrines. Whether it was the buying of forgiveness with indulgences, pay money, get people out of purgatory, purgatory itself, another twisting of the Scriptures, or the very doctrine that you can earn God's favor by being good enough, by being meritorious enough which entirely contradicts the very work of the cross that Christ alone saves and He's the Redeemer. They were stealing glory from God and giving it to themselves, and then they were also filling their pockets with money all in the process. But that wasn't only an ancient temptation. Churches today, whether it's the what you might call the modern pragmatic church, or maybe what we used to call the seeker-sensitive church, what are you doing? You're, you're moving away from God's prescribed means in His Word about what He says how you're to draw people and how people will be changed. And what is that? By the faithful preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the Word. God has said, that's how I intend to work. And yet we have moved to fads, gimmicks, entertainments, and programs. And, and I think among the genuine believers, might we just graciously say, maybe they had good intents but it was the wrong thing. Things like, well, we will bait them with amusement, we'll bait them with programs, and maybe we can sneak the gospel in there somewhere. But then you've moved from the authority of the word, haven't you? May we as a church never move from his word, but be ever submissive and reformed by it in our doctrine and in our practice. May his word always be our authority. And as soon as it's not, we're always in need back for a reformation. Now, the second warning sign that you're in need of a reformation this morning is this. You don't think you need to change, verses 28 to 32. In a way, Jesus now, he's just digging further down into that matter of you're bucking authority. Why? Because you don't want to change. It's a sign you need to be reformed. That is, he doesn't merely expose our hypocrisy he gets to the, the answer, well, why are we hypocritical? Why is our worship empty? But graciously, he not only exposes our wrong, he points us to the solution where mercy is found. 
Let's follow our Christ in that. And he does it by telling the story. This telling the story of these parable of two sons. And what you have, you've got a father, he's wealthy enough to have a vineyard, and he sends his boys out to work in the vineyard. I mean, this is what sons are for, right? Get to work, fellas. That's why God gave you to me. Verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Now, the first son's reply to his father is at first not great. Verse 29. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Now, I've been there as a father, but sadly, far more as a son to my dad. My dad would tell me to do something. No, not going to do it. Not going to. This was a dishonor to my father. And I know it was a frustration to him. And I felt that back then. But in this ancient Near Eastern culture, that kind of defiance, that's like treason. That was so shameful to so disregard your own father. It was inconscionable, it was intolerable, evil. But despite this evil, even the shame he brought to his father through his rebellion, happily, that's not the end of the story for him. Again, verse 29, he answered, I will not, but afterward he changed his mind and went. Okay, that's the first son. Let's turn to the next. Because his response to the father was different, looking out of verse 30. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So the father bids the same instructions to the next son, go today and work in the vineyard. Only this time the son obediently replies, I'll go. And even says so respectfully, yes, sir, I will go. But what's the problem? He never goes. He doesn't obey. Verse 30, again, he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. One says defiantly, I'm not going, and then he thinks about it later, changes his mind and goes after all, while the second son portrays obedience and says, I'm going to go, but he disobeys, he never goes. Now, look back to verse 28, the way the story began, because he's setting them up now, isn't it? He says, what do you think? He wants you to think about this parable and think about the implications of it. He wants you to be ready to make an assessment and a judgment. This is like a word problem, right? And the answer is obvious. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Now, quick time. Some of your Bibles have the sons flipped. And that's because of a textual variant between the manuscripts that have been copied and passed down to us. So some of yours will actually say the second. But if they did, then either way, here's the truth of it, right? Because it then flips who the sons are. Sorry to put that uh, confusion out there, but ask me about it later. The point is, either manuscript or translation as you look at it, who is the son that did the will of his father? It's not the one who said, I'm going to do it. It's the one who actually does it. And that's clear as you look at it. And in the case of the ESV or more reliable manuscripts, that's the first son. Now, did he say he was going to do it? No, but he did it anyway. So which of the two did the will of his father? As a reason the ESV here, the first one did. Bingo, right answer. The only trouble is, As they get the right answer, and maybe they were excited to say it, we can finally give the right answer to Jesus. They're incriminating themselves. 
I mean, with this story and then asking the question, Jesus is just teeing up, ready to crush their self-righteousness down the middle of that fairway, 400 yards. Look at verse 31. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And right there, no doubt, they want to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are you talking about? See, not only did the religious leaders think that they were going to go first in the kingdom because God loved them so much because they were so obedient, they knew the tax collectors and prostitutes would never make it into God's holy kingdom. So what are you talking about that they're going to get before us? Back to verse 32, let me explain, he says. For, that is, he's going to explain things now, John came to you in the way of righteousness. He came to you in the right way, preaching the righteous way. He's preaching the right way to get back to God. That's what John the Baptist preached. And and just as an aside, realize right then, right, Jesus has tipped his hand, so to speak, about how they should have answered the question they had dared not to answer earlier. Of course, John the Baptist was sent on mission from God. He testified about me, the authority of God incarnate. They wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. But he's saying, no, he was the messenger of the true God, and you didn't believe him. But you know who did believe in him? It's those that you think are the very worst of society, the worst sinners, the tax collectors and prostitutes. How bad are these sinners? Well, they're pretty bad. I mean, their whole profession way of life is sinful. They get up and go to work to go sin. Tax collectors. They were fellow oppressors of the Jewish people of God the tool of the Romans. And then you've got prostitutes. These women sought payment for all the ways they were going to disobey God that day. Pay me for this. These are walking, working sinners. And yet Jesus says these types who just sin, it seems like by breathing, they're getting into heaven before you. You, the authoritative and so holy and righteous religious leaders. And again, they are just shocked. No way! To make some analogy by way of application, showing the gap here or the upside-down nature of this, some of you are engineers, right? So let's say you were at this engineering firm and you're applying for a new job there. It's a big responsibility. You're going to oversee all the projects for the engineering firm. And you and many other qualified engineers apply. What do your qualifications look like? You, you have all the certifications you need. You've got all the licenses in all the different states where this company does projects. You've run scores of other projects. You've got the degrees. You've got the experience. And then the firm chooses a different guy, a guy you know. And you know he's not at all qualified. He's supremely unqualified. You know, it's somebody right out of school, high school. He's never designed anything. He's never run for anything. He has no clue about structural safety for bridges and so forth. And they hired him instead of you. Only that perceived gap between holiness and fitness for the kingdom, between these religious leaders and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, goes far beyond this little illustration about an engineering firm. And yet it stands. Great sinners get in before us? How can that be? How can that possibly be? Why? Here's why. You never see that you're wrong. You never change your mind and repent. You never see your sin. Verse 32 again. But the tax collectors and prostitutes, they believed in him, John the Baptist. 
And even when you saw it, you didn't afterward change your minds and believe in him. That, that was the thing that the tax collectors and prostitutes, that's what they got right. They were like the first son. Yes, they may have been great rebels. They may have disgraced their father. But they regretted what they did. They had second thoughts about it. They saw their errors, the many errors of their ways. Yet, despite all the multitude of errors, they turned. They changed their mind. They confessed them and they obeyed. And you know what happened then? They got mercy. They were brought into the kingdom. They were brought fully in and without reservation. And we know now that's all because of the cross work of Christ. They heard the good news, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they said, but I need mercy then, O king. And he says, come, I will give it. But you've got to see your sin and confess and come. That's exactly what these great sinners did. They heard, they believed, they changed their minds, they confessed, and they obeyed the gospel call. But for the likes of the Jewish leaders, they're like that second son that feigns and speaks about all kinds of obedience. They say all the right things. They, they utter all the respectful praises. All go, yes, sir. Only they just never go. They never do it. They never do the Father's will. And what's the Father's will? Here, see your sin, change your mind about it, repent and believe on Christ. And that's something they could never swallow to do. And so now the question gets posed back on them. What are you going to do? Which son are you going to be? And even the way Jesus frames it there, there's hope in the way he posits this. There's still a chance for you to be like the first son, you see? There's still a chance for you. But what do you got to do? What do you got to do to get there? You got to change your mind. You got to humble yourself and see your sin, see your errors. You have to see that you're corrupt. You got to see your desperate need for Christ. You need to see that you need a Savior. You need a Redeemer every bit. And this is where it gets so hard for religious types. You need to see that you need a Savior every bit as badly as the tax collectors and prostitutes. And until you, can't, until you can see that, until you change your mind about that, you are never going to make it in His kingdom. See, before a holy God, we are all on the same corrupt playing field. Hopeless apart from Christ. But in Christ, that's all the difference. Because in Him is a righteous death for sinners that there's enough mercy for all the sins of the scandalously wayward and all the sins of the arrogantly self-righteous if you will see it and come. Because see, what do we know? Jesus Christ, who did He come for? He came to save sinners. But that's only whom He came to save. If you don't see your sin and you're a sinner, He didn't come for you. He came to seek and save sinners, to be numbered with sinners, bear the sins of sinners, to save any sinner that will trust in him. But will you set aside your pride and see that you are a sinner yourself? That was the question back to the religious leaders. Because that's what distinguished these two sons. One saw his sin and changed his mind. The self-righteous son never did. That's why prostitutes and tax collectors are going to find peace with God and that you never will. But that's not a one-time thing in the Christian life. As we opened, this is the continual work of the Christian. Not getting saved over and over again, having a new relationship with God. 
But we are always being reformed, confessing our sin, finding our sin, turning from it, and repenting. We are always reforming and repenting. That is, you don't get the Jesus shot vaccine, right? And never have to worry about your sin problem again. It's not how this works. You should always be checking yourself, your spiritual temperature by the Word of God. Ever ready to discover your sin and then confess it and turn from it? We're always repenting. That's the character of a Christian. That's what it means to submit under the authority of God's Word. Because otherwise, if you pretend you don't have sin anymore, you're not listening to His Word. Things like, and let me just list a couple, you're so clearly denying what the Scripture so clearly says even about believers, like 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Or about as it regards temptation, even for Christians. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 warns us that let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Why? Because we're all susceptible to sin still. Or Paul writes this in Romans chapter 7, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Sin is close at hand, always. And it will be until we see Christ face to face. Our mission on this life will ever be warring against sin. Which means you always have room to be confronted by the Word of God. In light of that, here are three quick hits, so to speak, of application to live out this truth. First is this. Be always watchful to fight sin and temptation. Don't forget you're at war with sin. And it's out to kill your soul. And the enemy's right inside the castle, right in your heart. He goes with you wherever you go. There's no respite here. Once you stop searching out your sin, once you stop fighting in your heart, then you're losing. The battle against sin is like being on a treadmill. As soon as you start running, as soon as you stop running, you're not stagnant. You don't hold your ground. You fall back and fly off that machine. Be on guard and pray. Second, because we always know we're battling against sin and are always ready to be confronted. Second, consider others. Start thinking about others. Think about them as a sympathetic fellow sinner. That is, don't stoke your pride starting to assume that you don't sin as much as others do. If you start to think that, you just haven't probably dug deep enough in your heart. And that kind of self-righteousness is a hint that you still need a reformation. That means that sin's getting a hold. It's deceiving you. And so that means we need to remember, one, we're sinners. Two, Christ is a greater Savior. And three, we can show grace to others who didn't deserve it like we got. Always be watchful to fight sin. Consider others as fellow sinners. Number three, marvel at this. Marvel at the love of Christ. That as corrupted as you may be, As much sin dogs you in this life, if you're in Christ, marvel at this. He still loves you. He died for you knowing all of that. Some of you this morning, maybe your eyes are being opened to how corrupt you really are. That even maybe many of your best deeds have been tainted by evil intents, corrupted. You know, this Savior, like our Christ, When he came to the cross, he still paid for those in full. 
He still died for those sins. He still atoned for those sins. That in Christ they're gone. You've forgiven in Christ Jesus. And so, yes, as you come to grips with how corrupt your heart may be, seeing that maybe you need to change a lot more than you realized, you're going to also come to see His grace is far greater than you ever imagined. And what that's going to do, that's going to increase your love for Him. Is what did Jesus say in Luke chapter 7? The one who's forgiven much does what? Loves much. If you can see, yeah, how great your sin is, you're going to see how much greater your Savior is, and you cannot but love Him more and more. You gain nothing by running from God's Word, by pretending that you're righteous of yourself. Search out your sin, see you need to change, own up to your failures, and run to that cross, run and find mercy at the feet of Christ, and then let your love for Him swell and grow, because He loved you more than you knew. Let's praise Him for that. Let's pray together. Oh, indeed, oh Christ, we give you praise. You are, what can we say? In the gospel, we've tasted and seen that you were good, and you're better than we knew. Forgive us for our stingy, small views of your grace and mercy. Forgive us for our small notions of your holiness. Forgive us for our doubts about how effective your work on the cross is. Forgive us for our low view of your righteousness that you've given us, such that we are scared to see the sin in our own heart. Shine a light there by your word, even by your spirit today as we consider things. But as you do, as you reveal our sin, show us that there's a greater Savior again, that we would be purified, we'd be conformed to Christ, we'd be putting off sin and ever fighting it, that we would be a people ready to do good works for your glory, that our worship would be more pure as we anticipate that day when we will see this one who loved us so much face to face. That's for the praise of that one we pray. Amen.